This episode of the MGMA podcast is brought to you by Walmart Business. It's the Walmart you love, now for business. Get everything you need for your staff and patients in one place. Enjoy big savings on health and safety products, cleaning supplies, over-the-counter medications, and much more. And don't forget the break room snacks. Create a free account today and start shopping at business.walmart.com. That's business.walmart.com. From MGMA, welcome to the Insights Podcast. I'm Daniel Williams. Our community as a whole is embracing, the internet is embracing asynchronous experiences throughout their life. And so being able to utilize that in healthcare is really important. And it engages our patients. It, it meets our patients where they are. That's Katie Lawrence talking about improving patient access. We'll hear more from Katie later in the show. We'll also talk to Mark Davis about behavioral health integration and Bill Hampsch about transforming the patient experience with text messages. That's all coming up on this patient-centered care episode of Insights. But first, a quick word from our sponsors. Investing in effective training and onboarding programs for front office staff pays immediate dividends to your practice with increased patient and employee satisfaction. Leverage MGMA and share the responsibility of training your staff by utilizing our unique expertise and relieving the time commitment from your busy schedule. Based on the book by best-selling author Elizabeth Woodcock, this course will prepare your staff to thrive in their front office role. Visit mgma.com FOS for more information. Come together with peers and industry leaders to learn how the top industry performers are achieving success and the strategies they deployed to get where they are today. Join us at the MGMA 19 Operations Conference in Austin, Texas, April 14th through 16th. For more information, visit mgma.com slash TOCREG. A recent study found that 70% of primary care visits can be related back to mental health issues. To discuss the importance of behavioral health integration in a practice, we're joined by Mark Davis, CEO, Wasatch Pediatrics. Mark, thanks for joining the show today. Yeah, happy to. Now, if you have just a moment, please tell our audience about your background in healthcare and medical practices. Sure. Um, hard to believe, but I've worked in healthcare now for about 25 years. Kind of makes me think, geez, I'm getting old. Um, <laughs> and in medical group practices specifically for about, for most of that, for probably 21 or 22 years out of that. So lots of time with, with medical groups. It's all been in uh, primary care with a fair amount of it being specifically in pediatrics. Now, in researching your session on uh, behavioral health integration, uh, I ran across a statistic that really got my attention. It said mm -hmm. that up to 70% of primary care visits are for psychosocial issues. I saw that number. It absolutely just blew me away. D tell us what is the root cause of these issues and, and what can practices do to integrate behavioral health programs to help treat patients? Yeah. That is the big and pressing question, isn't it? So, so there was a study done in 2008 that indicated that up to 70% of, uh, 
as you mentioned, of, of primary care visits can, can be traced back to psychosocial issues. And what we have learned in pediatrics, particularly from another study done um, called ACEs, which stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences Study, is that there's a really strong relationship um, between significant sort of health issues and early social and psychological problems with children. So when we look at things like substance abuse and depression, even like heart disease, um, STD, smoking, suicide, all that kind of thing, a lot of it can be traced to adverse childhood events, um, which is really sobering because, you know, that's common. And while, while all of us have uh, have things that, that weren't particularly uh, fun or great in our, in our childhood, some of them uh, make a lifelong sort of impression on our overall health. And that's what we've learned. And that's why we feel, particularly in pediatrics, but in all of primary care, if we can intervene and do a little bit more with, with some of our behavioral health needs, that maybe we can make a dent in, in that problem. Well, let me ask you then, um, that 70% number, does that, so is that across the board? Is that when children come to visits? Is it for adults? Is it, does it, mm-hmm. does it change over time? Do we see that number go up or down? I'm not sure of the specifics, but I know that it's broad. So it's not just children, it's adults as well. And so it's across the spectrum. And I'm not sure if it, if it does change over time, but I know that it's um, across the spectrum. Now, I wanted to return to that statistic. We, we were talking about it. There's a real problem there. There's a, a problem, and there's also an opportunity for medical practices to address that. So mm-hmm. what can practices do to integrate be- behavioral health models or programs to help treat these patients? And, that's, and there's a wide spectrum of things that, that practices can do, and it can vary anywhere from kind of on one end of the spectrum. Maybe you have a a relationship with a community therapist or a community psychologist or psychiatrist even, where you can refer people and you have a nice exchange of information, you're receiving information back and that kind of thing. And it can go all the way to uh, an integration where you've got providers in-house that are working very closely with your physicians and, um, and, and handle the, the patient together. So there's a lot of different models, and in the presentation, we're going to cover those. And again, we kind of like to look at it on a spectrum or a kind of a continuum of options. And we have, um, we've explored a number of those, and, and they each have kind of pros and cons and, and fit a little differently depending on the situation. Uh, but we're finding that, that having providers in-house with certain expectations and, and being truly integrated with our traditional medical providers is really important. We're also finding that, uh, especially looking at that through that medical home lens, that patients are more comfortable receiving behavioral health care services in their primary care physician's office. And this is particularly true, I think, for kids. They're familiar with the office. It's not threatening. I think there's a little less sort of stigma. You know, we hope there's not a lot of stigma around mental health anymore, but unfortunately I think there is sometimes. And so coming to your regular doctor's office for that kind of care lessens that and maybe reduces a little bit of the anxiety associated with it. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm sure there, you, you've talked about it. There, there are different models out there, but what does a, 
a typical, I don't know if there is a typical one, but a mm-hmm. typical behavioral health model or program look like? What, what is, what is sure. it? How do we define that? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, and again, can be pr- fairly broad. There's kind of two, two avenues to, to behavioral health. One is kind of the, the prescriber model where you have someone that's kind of in the, in the role of, of like psychiatry where um, there may be patients that have a need for medication and these providers are specifically trained or have a lot of knowledge or background in prescribing medications for mental health issues. And then kind of the other route, and, and, and these overlap, some providers can do both, but the other route is, is therapy. So it may or may not be combined with medication, um, but therapists can, can obviously have sessions with patients where they go through and provide tools and those things that we know that, that are associated with therapy. So there's kind of those two avenues. And I think optimally what we've discovered is if you have both of those available in your office, that's the ideal. And, it, and kind of it, it depends on, on your physician's comfort level with prescribing psychiatric meds, right? Um, mm-hmm. Some of them, some of them have a pretty high threshold, and some of them have a lower threshold. So that kind of depends. But having both of those options uh, available, we think, is pretty important. Right. And I wanted to go back to something you had mentioned earlier. You had mentioned there are pros and cons to that. And so I wanted to follow up. Could you give our audience uh, some ideas or some examples of what those pros and cons are of uh, integrating a program? Sure. Um, the, the, the pros are probably obvious. We have, we have better outcomes with patients. We have, like I mentioned, that comfort level with receiving those services within their, their medical home office or their primary care office. Um, so those are the biggest pros. We just think it's better care. It takes a burden off of those uh, providers or those physicians. Um, you know, sometimes we find that a physician goes into an appointment, and this is well known in the industry, and it's a 10-minute, you know, straightforward sick visit, say. They go in there, and then it turns out that there's a lot of other problems, and maybe there's a, a major depression going on or something that takes a lot more time, um, and, and those can be difficult for physicians. And so um, a pro certainly is having the resource in the office that you could refer those people to and not have to spend all that time and kind of sync your whole schedule for the day. On the con side, there, there's a number of things that I think you have to be concerned about. One is financial. Can we afford doing this? If we have, say, a therapist in-house, how is this therapist going to be paid? How are we going to get reimbursed for the care that that person is uh, providing? And it kind of depends on your, your payer mix and if those payers are willing to put these folks on their panels, what those reimburse rates, reimbursement rates look, look like. You know, we've had to sit down and, and figure out, all right, how many therapy sessions would it take to pay this person's salary? And so is that an expectation that we have? And then extra time beyond that, maybe they're just being part of the practice and can, can visit with providers and be available for urgent needs otherwise. But so those are, those are some of the cons, certainly, is, is the financial thing. And sometimes it boils down to also to, to space and uh, those sort of other physical requirements that can be difficult. So I think those are probably the two big ones. 
That's great. Um, Mark, thanks so much for joining the podcast today. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for visiting with me. To get a better understanding of how many practices are integrating behavioral health models, MGMA STAT surveyed more than 1,300 healthcare leaders. To help us understand the results, I'm joined by Pamela Ballou Nelson, Principal Consultant with MGMA. Pam, thanks so much for joining us today. It's good to be here, Daniel. I think it's a great opportunity to kind of share what some of the latest uh, findings and information, uh, what's going on in the healthcare field on a very timely basis. Yeah, it, talking about that, in a recent MGMA stat poll, we, we actually asked uh, healthcare leaders, have you integrated behavioral health providers into your practice? And there was an interesting uh, result here uh, that showed only 32% have done that in the past two years. And I'm just wondering, why do you think that number's so low? Well, I think that's a good question, Daniel. And I think if you look back to the previous uh, poll that we did on this particular subject, it is a slight increase over that poll. So that's encouraging. I, I think the, uh, the biggest reason for the lack of pace for integration uh, comes with the failure of many of the payers to pay sufficiently for the services that are being performed. You know, traditionally in healthcare, mental health and physical health have been very separate entities. Even within a single commercial plan, an entirely different entity may be taking care of the payment of mental health. We have not connected in our silo-ridden healthcare system, the importance of putting together the mental health and the behavioral health. So we still have some challenges with payments. And also within those payments, the individuals administering the behavioral health need to be licensed individuals. So psychologists or licensed clinical social worker. So if you're looking at just a a behavioral counselor or a marriage counselor that may not be licensed, there's often difficulty in getting those entities paid for, especially with commercial or Medicare. Some state Medicaid programs have made some exceptions, which is important. I think it's important for us to understand uh, and for our payers to understand the impact that mental health has on the physical health itself. So we know from some recent minimum data that medical costs for treating patients with chronic medical and comorbid mental health or indoor substance abuse disorders are two to three times higher on average compared to the cost for those beneficiaries who don't have those morbidities. So the projected additional healthcare costs incurred by people with behavioral health comorbidities are estimated to be about $406 billion in 2017 alone. Now, one of the things that I found interesting in the study is that the practices that have integrated a behavioral health model, it, it revealed that they're doing that as part of their population health strategy and overall strategy there. I think that's encouraging. If you could um, tell our listeners how they could make that uh, part of the strategy in their own practice. I think that's a very good question. So I think we need to be uh, resourceful. I think oftentimes a practice 
uh, does not sit down and fully calculate what is the cost to them personally to add behavioral health. And maybe uh, they need to consider how they can jointly um, cooperate in partnership with other practices. Now, if practices are in advanced alternative payment models or ACOs or IPAs that want to move more into the population health management, there is an opportunity for those services to be aggregated. So you could maybe share that behavioral health worker, that clinical psychologist or licensed clinical social workers within a larger entity so that you're not having to have the responsibility of paying for that totally on your own. So I think we need to be creative in our population health strategies. I know most physicians today, our practices are looking at how they are going to integrate with other uh, advanced alternative payment models. That's CMS's goal for Medicare for sure. And so we begin to understand that as these services like behavioral health are important, we may not be able to sustain them totally within our own practice, but how can we utilize the aggregated whole in the systems that we belong to to provide these services since we know they um, have a benefit. Now, is there anything else that you found interesting from this research that was conducted or other research that you've done on behavioral health uh, that you'd like to share with our audience that could, could help them with their practices? Well, as I mentioned in the beginning, I, I am encouraged that there at least is an increase from our last poll to this poll. I think uh, it's very uh, it's very difficult for change to occur uh, in, in our healthcare system. And so I think that that's significant. Even a one or two percent increase is encouraging to me. And I'd like to see us, you know, continue to explore options. I think the research is mounting uh, daily as to the importance of uh, considering the behavioral and mental health component of our chronic diseases. Uh, just recently, I was listening to uh, a webinar on social determinants of health, and they were just talking about the concept of loneliness and the number of lonely people that exist and how that impacts the physical health. And so I think by focusing and refocusing on the importance of this mental and behavioral health component could be a significant um, savings both to the individuals personally and, and certainly from a population health standpoint by helping us change our behaviors so that we're eating better and exercising. And, and I think the research is mounting on this and I want us to continue to focus on how we can sustain the uh, integration of behavioral health in healthcare. Pam, thanks so much for those insights. Thanks, Daniel. The problem of creating access to care continues to grow more complicated for practices. So how do we solve this? Do you throw more staff at the problem? That might work, but with massive staffing shortages in the industry, practices really need to be more strategic to solve this issue. Katie Lawrence, Director of Ambulatory Optimization and Integration at Greenville Health System, is here to discuss improving patient access while reducing staff burnout. Hey, Katie, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. 
Now, if you don't mind, please tell our audience about your background in healthcare and medical practices. Sure. I've been with Greenville Health System, which is in the upstate of South Carolina, the northern part of the state, for a little over 10 years. And I've worked in all sorts of functions within the medical practices. I began on the specialty medicine side in pulmonary and gastroenterology practices. I moved on to working with our primary care sites. I was director of operations for our family medicine and internal medicine practices for a number of years. And in my most recent position, which I've been in for almost two years, I work across the medical group, across all of our regions and clinical departments to ensure that we have a seamless uh, experience for our patients, for our team members and staff, and to try to work to have best practices across the system. Now, this may sound elementary, but, but in your dream practice, what does improved access and more engaged patients actually look like? So to me, having access to care is about more than just a face-to-face visit. I think face-to-face visits with our healthcare providers will always be an important component to our system and our industry. But I also think that being able to provide asynchronous care, meaning being able to message your physician and receive a response or being able to make an appointment at 1030 at night, I think utilizing the functionality and the sort of the conveniences that the internet provides for us and being able to jump into that as a healthcare industry is going to be critical as we continue to move forward. Our community as a whole is embracing, the internet is embracing asynchronous experiences throughout uh, their lives. Um, and so being able to utilize that in healthcare is really important and it engages our patients. It, it meets our patients where they are. Um, many of the patients in our area work in industries where they're on a factory line. They're not able to just take time off and come see us um, in normal business hours. So how do we provide care where those patients are, whether that's extended hours, whether that's a video visit, whether that's asynchronous care. So utilizing new technology and new ways of thinking about how we provide care to our patients. Right. And I was going to ask you that next. It, it does sound like what you're getting at is there has to be flexibility. Um, if if new technology is what some patients require, then you have to provide that. If, if you know, they, they may want a little more hands-on, they want to be in the office talking to people face-to-face, you have to be there too. Is that right? Is, is there that balance between adopting and embracing new technologies as well as being great in the face-to-face meetings? I think so. And sometimes there needs to be sort of a division of labor. Some of your providers or your team members may be excellent at face-to-face care and others may be better at the asynchronous care or maybe more willing to be, you know, computer savvy. So I think you have to have a balance there of what your team members are doing. The other thing is that I think we can use technology even in our face-to-face visits. So for example, if somebody canceled for an appointment later this afternoon, the old way of doing things was that you went to your waiting list and you started manually calling people. Um, how can you use technology to send a text message to five people who are on the waiting list and one of them can respond and sort of first come, first serve to get that appointment? It's now not taking your staff time. It's being able to just message a patient real quickly on their smartphone and they can accept it with a click of a button. How do we use technologies like that to facilitate those last minute uh, cancellations and fill in our physician's holes 
in their schedule so that we can um, see patients and see them face to face and not have that downtime when we do have those last minute cancellations. Now, in your presentation, really the main theme of it is having better engagement, having better access, but at the same time, you know, as you say, uh, trying to reduce that workload or at least um, reduce burnout. Um, when I read that, when I think about it, um, it almost seems like those two aims could be at odds with one another. And so I'm just wondering, how are you able to achieve that goal? So I think you have to think a little broader. So for example, in the, the example I just gave around the text messaging to be able to take workload off of our team members who don't have to make manual phone calls anymore, um, to be able to remove that functionality or that job duty from them, to be able to take things off of their plate in order to have a new focus. So I think what's important is as we look to increase access, that we're also looking at what can we take away? What is an outdated process? What can we replace with technology? Or what can we just stop doing altogether? Um, what can we streamline? How many clicks can we reduce in our medical record? Um, what are things that we can take off of the plates of our team members? And then also to remember that engaging patients is sometimes just the way that we interact with them. Are we smiling when we're talking on the telephone? Are we making eye contact when we're talking to patients face-to-face? -face? Are we thinking about things from the other person's perspective? Are we putting ourselves in their shoes? Um, I recently spoke with a number of referral coordinators and I asked them about what 48 hours meant to them. And when they were patients, 48 hours is a long time to wait for a specialist to call you back with an appointment. But when you are that specialist referral coordinator, 48 hours can go by in a blink of an eye based on the workload that you have kind of hitting your desk. So remembering that, that what can seem like a flash and sort of a normal work day to you can feel like an eternity to the patient. So really thinking about things from the other person's perspective and trying to be mindful of that, um, both when you are the patient and then when you're the team member for sure. To bring light to this, this model and this integration, do you have an example or a, a case study where, where it's worked, where it's been successful in a medical practice? Absolutely. So throughout um, Granville Health System, which I um, am a part of, and as we are transitioning our name to become Prisma Health, it's throughout our practices, we have a number of initiatives that we are working on. So for example, the, um, the automated reminders for cancellation is now live in all of our practices, and we are able to schedule um, patients without needing any interaction from our team members, they just sort of appear on the schedule. And while that may seem a little unnerving, the team members do have the notification to be able to be notified that the patient is coming and prepare if it is a short term sort of, um, you know, coming today or tomorrow. But then on the longer horizon, if they've just made an appointment for two weeks from now because their earlier appointment was a month out, um, then that just sort of fits in our normal um, normal cadence around prepping for that patient to arrive. So I think that any number of initiatives um, are, again, going to have those early stumbling blocks and things that we need to work through. But if you can kind of hold through that process and have those early adopters who are willing to see it through, you know, sometimes it's just a week's worth of, you know, working out to become best practice. And other times it takes a little longer, depending on the size of the change. But I think that a lot of changes can be really beneficial both to the team member and to the patient who gets to experience a new technology, a new way of interacting with their physician or their um, care team. And I think all of that is really positive as we continue to move healthcare forward. 
Now, you mentioned burnout uh, at the beginning of this conversation. Burnout is top of mind to so many of our listeners. They, they have to deal with it in their own medical practices, perhaps even in their own, in their own careers right now. Um, any final thoughts you'd like to share with them about ways in which they can minimize burnout within their team? Sure. So I think that reducing burnout is kind of a twofold, um, kind of have to work with it from two perspectives. The first is ensuring that your team maintains their engagement. So are they continuously kind of taking time to refuel and revitalize, whether that's hearing positive comments from um, from patients themselves, whether that's connecting to purpose and sharing with their colleagues why they joined healthcare and why they're in this industry to begin with, sort of reminding themselves of the joy that they get from being in this industry. And then the flip side of that is reducing those things that they don't have to do. So what is on their plate that we can take off? Um, what are those hassles of day-to-day work life that we can minimize, that we can make better? Um, and I think it's both of those things because you can be as joyous and joyful about the patients you serve, but if you continuously have to do something that just sort of aggravates you or rubs you the wrong way or is just a burden um, and doesn't seem to have much value, that can be um, as much a cause of burnout as not seeing the joy to begin with. Well, Katie, thanks so much for joining the podcast today. You're very welcome. Thank you again for having me. As Katie mentioned, one way to improve patient access is through technology. In this next segment, Senior Editor Craig Weberg has been talking to Norman Shinvin, MD and CEO, and Heidi Salev, Marketing and Customer Service Director at Austin Regional Clinic. They discuss patient portals and how technology can optimize patient access. What we find is that, like with anything else, there's a spectrum, and there's a spectrum of users, and surprisingly, A lot of people initially thought, well, this is definitely going to be adopted very heavily by younger folks, but older folks won't use it. And what we found is something that's actually very different. What we found is people that need and use healthcare more are the ones that have adopted the patient portal the most. No matter their age, no matter their technical abilities, if they use healthcare and they need to be in contact with their doctor, they need to know what medications they're taking, they come in more often, they're the higher users of the technology. Because again, they actually, that group actually finds greater trust in communicating with their doctor on a more regular basis through the technology. Now there's still some people who refuse, you know, in the older age range who refuse to get onto the technology and still wanna call. But there are also some 20 and 30 year olds who still feel more comfortable getting on the phone and calling. So we really find that there is no stereotype stereotype in usage, except for the stereotype that if you need health care, you're more likely to use the technology. Well, that's interesting. That is against um, kind of the norm of what I would have expected as well. You know, I'm just personally, um, I do not use a lot of, uh, you know, I see my primary care physician once a year. And then I find when I'm trying to log in that I have forgotten my password. So, right. <laughs> you know what, that's, that's the most popular call to our call center, which is as part of what I manage as well as the customer service, the technical support center. And by far, that is the most important call that we get from our patients is they can't get in because they've lost their password. They've gotten locked out. They don't remember how to get back in. No matter how many resets 
they think that they can do automatically that we provide through the technology, it's still difficult for them. So that is the biggest problem. So that kind of leads into my next set of questions here. What has changed with current technology, workflows, and policies that allow patients uh, to have uh, more easily access their patient portals? Obviously, we've just talked about the importance of your customer service group. Anything else that's allowing patients to more easily access the portals? So we have been able to get patients more engaged with the portal and to use the portal more by starting off with getting our staff and our doctors on the portal. Because if they don't believe in the value of the portal, then there's no way they're gonna communicate that value to the patients. So really where it started off was with the nurses. The nurses found value in the portal for themselves and their families, but also because they were now able to get a message to patients without playing tag and without the phone calls going back and forth. We also started signing the patients onto the portal in the exam room. When we first tried to do it by email, sending patients email, giving them a code, letting them know when they get home they could sign on. By the time they get home from their appointment, they're on to the next task and chore that they have at home. And they've already forgotten about what they've been instructed to do with the doctor's office. So if we can get them in the exam room to sign on to the portal, that's one of the biggest barriers. We found that that really helps them get more engaged. If at that point somebody can tell them check your port, check the portal after you get home for your test results, then that gets them even more engaged. So now they have, they're in the portal and now they have an instruction, they know what to expect, they can immediately go in and check it. So that, that really helps. In addition, we spent about five years communicating internally and externally, a whole brand campaign around access. And the portal was one of the central pieces of that access campaign because that really is where patients get access to their health records, to their doctor, to make appointments by themselves. And that became repeated over and over and over again, internally and externally. We had ad campaigns, videos, meeting announcements. So really everywhere we went, we communicated it. Yeah, we had, initially we had a significant um, resistance from the physicians who, who did not want to have Patients have free access to them and their advice and so on. And it took uh, quite a while for some physicians to adopt this. Others were quick at, you know, early adopters. At this point, I think the majority of physicians encourage their patients to use the portal because it's easier for everyone and it's quicker. And again, we get away from that phone tag um, challenge. Uh, we do get messages from patients and those messages need to be handled and that has, has uh, created a, a need for some operational changes. We, the queues where the messages come in from the patients, whether it's requesting refills or getting, giving, getting advice, uh, need to be managed and managed in a timely fashion. And that has been a, a, a big effort for us of late, reassigning nursing staff and to, to pick up the messages quickly and process them quickly. Well, that sounds, you know, like you guys are really doing some great things there. I, I, I really like your comment of getting them logged in inside the exam room, um, building that familiarity of even what the page looks like and what expectations are. I think that is, that's great. That, that, that uh, breaks down a barrier, as you mentioned. And then we're, the other- we're all, we're all creatures of habit. And if you can develop 
their habit to use it, then they're going to use it. And, and it, it is the infrequent users who struggle and just give up and pick up the phone. Um, but the, the frequent users do quite well with this technology. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And then the other thing I'm noticing as a theme here is this, you're showing the value to both the patient and to the provider side. Like you're able to get them communicating in a way that um, is helpful for workflows and it's, it's, it's aiding with the care and not just a burden or a bother. So I think those two things I'm really picking out of here are, are you know, I'm guessing why it's such, so successful at your organization. Part of that is making sure that we get the provider's trust. And so in order to get their trust, that means we need to listen to them and we need to make changes along the way that work for their workflow. So we need to listen to the doctors. We need to listen to the clinical staff. We really need to listen to all of our internal users. Otherwise, they will not support it. It's What was interesting was especially in the <clears throat> online scheduling. As Dr. Chenven said, a lot of the doctors were very reticent to kind of hand over the control of their schedule to patients. Can, can, they were insisting that the patients were going to book the appointments incorrectly and they were going to kind of sneak in and, and abuse the rules of scheduling. And what we found was that, you know, besides the one or two percent that do sneak in because human nature, they're going to want to try to break down any barrier there is, but 98%, 99% of the patients are booking according to the schedule. We're able to set and program physician templates so that it does make it difficult for patients to book the wrong type of appointment. And with that happening, not only did doctors gain more trust in the system, but when they saw that they were actually able to increase their practice, they were able to grow their practice faster by doing that. We now have more doctors requesting to be on the portal. And these are specialty doctors. These are specialists who at the beginning absolutely were adamant about not having any of their patients being able to schedule on the portal. And now I have a waiting list of specialists who cannot wait for us to get them on the portal. So that's been a very slow and patient process for us, but it's worked for us just by being patient and proving to them that we want to do what's best for them. So we, we have a statistic for you, and it, um, and it is that 13% of our appointments are, are booked through the portal at this point. That doesn't sound like a huge number, but we, we see well over a million office visits per year. And so that's, that's quite a few when you think about it. Also, statistically, that puts us in the top rank of users, uh, portal users uh, across the country. There are very few systems or medical groups that can claim that high a self-appointment ratio. I think the average across the industry that I've seen is somewhere around 2%. So we're, we're very proud of our 13%. And if you look at just portal users, of all portal users, about 21% of our appointments are booked through the portal. Another use of technology in the medical field that is growing in popularity is the use of text to connect with patients. Our next guest says texting can transform the entire patient experience. Craig Weberg is back chatting with Bill Hampsch, CEO and Practicing Administrator at North Florida Women's Care. We're talking today about text messaging our patients. and. Can you talk about why text messaging has become such an important tool for 
patient experience and, and for health outcomes as well? Over and over, text messaging uh, beats both email and phone calls. Patients successfully receive approximately 99% of all their text messages, but on statistically average, patients or people don't open their emails uh, more than 20% of the time and answer their phone calls about no more than 45% of the time. And, you know, this isn't your grandfather's medical practice anymore. You know, the technology um, in many industries has evolved and any business has to adapt uh, to the customer or market demands. And we are no different than that. In fact, in our practice, over 90% of our patient population is under 65 years old. Being an OBGYN practice, we have many patients in the millennial age and their primary communication is through text messaging. They don't pick up their phones and talk to their parents anymore. Why would they even talk to their doctor? You've talked a little bit about how this has improved some of the aspects of, of your um, throughput and your collections, perhaps, in your, in your um, practice. You know, can you talk a little bit more about kind of how or what improvements you have seen after implementing these text messaging programs? By far, the number one improvement would be a decrease in our phone calls. Many times patients would call our office to cancel their appointment or to reschedule it because they couldn't make it. And invariably they'd be on hold. You know, I pull some of my appointment schedulers who answer the phones at our call center. They get pulled to cover other workstations because someone is out sick or they're out on uh, medical leave. And so um, it's unfortunate, but the phone call volume is now handled by a smaller subset of individuals, which requires you know, longer wait times for our patients. So many times those patients would give up and they would just not show up for their appointment because they made an attempt to call us. And yes, they can go through our portal and cancel their appointment, but most people aren't going to do that. It's too cumbersome or challenging. They can't remember their logins or passwords. So they would just call. And so now when they do get the text message for the reminder at different intervals, they can cancel that appointment or request to reschedule it right from their phone 24 hours a day without ever having to speak to anybody in the office or wait 20 plus minutes on the phone. So that has improved the volume of calls um, being reduced because the patient's communicating back through other alternate means. And this has also improved our no-show rate. We've actually dropped our no-show rate since implementing this technology by 50%. So we, and, and I most, uh, attribute that to the fact that they're able to communicate back those uh, requests to cancel or reschedule their appointment through text messaging. Another big component is uh, the phone volume or phone tag that we have. We get a lot of patients that are referred to us by primary care physicians. And a lot of times we try to call the patient to schedule them with our office. And, you know, and many times they don't answer their phone. They don't recognize who we are. They probably think it's a robocall. And so they try to call back once we leave the message and then they cannot get through to the person on the call or they're waiting long periods of time. So now we do uh, put in the system where they um, get a text message saying that your doctor that has a specific doctor's name had referred you to our office, please call this number. And the number goes directly to our referral coordinator's desk that they can actually handle that phone call. And if they don't answer it because they're on another call or away from their desk, 
they can go to their voicemail and then they can you know connect back and forth and what the best part of this is is that i have amazing reporting capabilities so i can see how many of those referrals are actually converted into actual appointments and i've seen an increase in those by 25 percent since implementing this system so i am driving more business to our practice through utilizing this technology just from the referral business, but also uh, with those no-shows being canceled by the patient in advance, I can fill those slots. And the particular program that we use, uh, we have a wait list for every provider, and there's some docs that are easier to get in to see than others, because many times some of our physicians are on call, they're in surgery, and they're busy. So with this system, I have it set to automatically start rolling through the waiting list for that uh, physician and those people at the top of the list get called for or text messaged first and to say offer them that appointment slot that just opened up that somebody had just canceled patients love that it's in, in improving our patient experience so um, and and giving them this ability to to self schedule for a specific appointment type that meets the criteria without ever having to talk to a person on the phone so to answer your question long-windedly with a short uh, summary, I would say that the volume of phone calls has dramatically dropped uh, to the office and, and conversely improved our patient experience. So I'm interested to see what, you know, the text messaging software or the program actually looks like. If you could, I mean, you're not texting from phones, are you? It was an, it's an interface with a computer, I'm assuming. Right, you log in through a web browser. <clears throat> excuse me, web browser. I have login uh, for different staff or different uh, functionality, different permissions, and um, basically they can queue up a patient by their name, by their date of birth, and it's you know linking directly to our database for our EHR, and so you can see in this system um, any chat. It's a secure chat sessions and that would be any um, messages that we've sent them through clinical actions, um, any appointment reminders. So you can see a whole journey of communication with each individual particular patient and who's been communicating with them in the system. Um, you can see any um, broadcast messages that have gone out. There's also the referral management. So I can see uh, basically how many of those have been completed and those are incompleted. On the reporting uh, component to this application, I can see the volume of referrals that have been entered for different primary care physicians in the community. So I can look graphically to know which are my high referrals and which one are my low referring physicians. Um, I can also have a dashboard that shows me my net promoter score uh, as to what the score was when the patient completed the satisfaction survey question after their appointment, I can look and see how many of those are tens, nines, and eights, and I can drill down specifically down to the individual person and do some research if I need to if it's a low score. Um, so, and it's, it's pretty easy, it's pretty intuitive when you get into the system to navigate around uh, pretty easily and it's 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 fluid there's constant you know communications going out to people if there's somebody had canceled their appointment so it start you know communicating down the waitlist for that particular doctor so things are moving 
like on a freeway very fast um, and all that is visible to you on this interface. Wow. So many good things here. Uh, you know, it seems like everything that uh, it really has improved a number of areas of your practice and of your patient experience. So it's, that's great. <clears throat> I'm going to close off today by asking you if you have any uh, words of advice for the listeners on setting up a, a text messaging system. Sure. Well, Technology doesn't have to be has it doesn't have to complicate things. And in, in many cases, it's a very simple practice to to implement and improve the patient experience. You know, at the same time, and if you keep the patients, you know, at the center of everything you do, technology becomes an obvious solution. And our patients are already using their cell phones and they're already texting with increasing regularity. You know, why not just meet them where they are? and text with them as well. Well, that concludes our patient-centered care episode. Thanks to our guests, Mark Davis, Katie Lawrence, Pamela Ballou-Nelson, Norman Shenvin, Heidi Celeb, and Bill Hamps. Don't forget to check out our other series, Industry Insider, where we have full interviews with your favorite Insights guest. And we go even deeper on the biggest trends and challenges medical practices face today. Mark Davis, Katie Lawrence, Norman Shinvin, and Bill Hamps can all be heard speaking at the Operations Conference. For more information, visit mgma.com slash tocreg. If you like the show, please rate and review it on wherever you get your podcast. Every review helps new listeners find the show. If you have any questions, concerns, or ideas, please shoot us an email at podcast at mgma.com. MGMA Insights is presented by Craig Weberg, Declan McGee, and I'm Daniel Williams. Thanks for listening. The popular buzzword we've been seeing everywhere is AI. But what we all want to know is how we can implement and use it to our advantage. When it comes to improving margins, accelerating cash flow, and optimizing staff performance, there's a one-stop shop using cloud-based predictive analytics. MGMA Analytics is your AI-enabled tool that upscales technology you've already been paying for, so you can silo your disparate systems and make data-backed business decisions. Visit mgma.com analytics and see how AI can revolutionize your finances and operations. Again, visit mgma.com slash analytics today.